Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Tuesday, March 12th. I am Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Brian Helmkamp. Hi, Brian. Hi, Ben. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? Good. Good. So you are the founder of Code Climate. Yes. Uh, can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. Uh, Code Climate is hosted, automated code reviews for your Ruby and Rails applications. Mm-hmm. So we connect to your Git repository. And every time you push new code, we take a look at it and give your team feedback about how the quality of the code is changing over time. So if you have uh, cases of duplication creeping in, complex methods or classes, stuff like that, we can identify it. But a little bit more interestingly than that, we can give you a guidepost to sort of follow along as your application is developing uh, and let you know if there are problem spots before they become really big technical debt issues or let you know if you're sort of succeeding on your goals and improving your code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite things about the system is that you get uh, a letter grade per class. Yes. And so you've actually been on the podcast before, and we talked about this last time, and, and one of the caveats is sort of like, these letter grades are like a little bit arbitrary, right? Like you sort of just invented this grading scheme. That's right. Uh, one day in a fit of caffeine-powered coding, I assume. Right. Um, but it, it's handy to have a metric that's sort of distilled down, even if that metric is not, you know... Who's, who's to say what, what really a B is versus a C? Yeah, uh, that was kind of one of the big learnings. I mean, there's a lot of tools that will give you a lot of data about the information that's in your code base, but there aren't as many that do, in my opinion, a good job of sort of summarizing that and making it something you can quickly look at and, and get a full understanding of, or at least a, a start to get an understanding of what the tool is telling you. And when you're you know knee-deep in the next feature... Uh, it's useful to be able to just quickly glance and say, okay, you know, does this seem okay? Or is this something I should take another look at? That's really kind of the big determination we're trying to help people make. Don't worry about it. Or maybe this should be a starting point for a conversation or something. I should just go back and see, did I do my best work here? Mm -hmm. Cool. So, um, as of the last podcast, uh, you had just crossed, uh, 2,500 open source projects on the tool. That's right. And open source repos can be on there for free. Yes, we're totally free for open source. Yeah, and that was, so that was four months ago at RubyConf, and I just saw you recently announced that you've hit 5,000. Yes, we announced that we hit 5,000 a couple weeks ago, uh, and I think we're probably uh, at about 6,000 now. Wow, so gr- growth has kind of taken off. Yes, uh, also growing on the, uh, the paid side of the business, that, which that was is my next question. <laughs> very important so that we can keep doing the open source side of it. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, we've been really uh, humbled by the appreciation we get from the, the open source folks who've been finding value in the tool. Mm-hmm. Do you find, well, first, is there a, a significant cost to supporting the open source repos? It's certainly uh, more server-intensive than most people might imagine at first blush, sort of having conversations with people. You know, we we do a lot to hide the fact that there's hard work going on uh, under a very clean interface. Mm. Um, So you can't really, you know, the pages don't change all the time, right? They only change when there's new code pushed. But the processes that we have to go through uh, to analyze a new um, commit that you've pushed up are actually pretty intensive. So it varies a lot by project. You know, some people push gems that are, one file and they never change so those are you know basically trivial to host um one of the larger projects i just know because it shows up in the logs from time to time is um the metasploit project hmm. every time metasploit gets updated i think it generates around i don't know six thousand background jobs in our system uh so that would be on the far end of the uh, the other side what are these jobs doing uh each of those jobs will run through and analyze one ruby file so we decompose the analysis of an entire project into one, basically one job per file, and we roll it all together at the end. 
So why do you need to analyze every file if every file didn't change? Yes, good question. Um, well, a simple answer. There's, there's multiple answers, but a simple one would be uh, duplication, for example. Mm. So we have to find cases where syntax trees might be similar across the whole project. Even though only one of 6,000 files may have changed, that file may now duplicate one of the other 5,999. Gotcha. That's a pain. It's it like this connected graph where everything affects each other. Yeah. If I knew more about computer science, I could tell you that that algorithm is O of n log squared to the nth power. Sounds like there's um, an exponent in there. But it's, not, my it's not linear. I know that much. Sure. Exactly. Um, so did you, was that, that computational model, the one that you started with, did you start with one job per file? We did start with one job per file, but we've been making some improvements along the way to sort of, uh, improve concurrency. And when we improve concurrency, that helps because it gets the snapshot time down so we can give people results faster, yeah. which is one of our key metrics. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of intricacies about that, that that I won't bore all of the listeners with. But for example, we used to do the duplication analysis separate um, as just like one process. It was one big background job. And so everything else would run and then we'd run the duplication analysis uh, at the same time. But that one would take far longer than everything else. So basically everything would be waiting for the duplication analysis to complete. Um, that we did some some pretty significant modifications to and figured out a way to distribute portions of it so that it runs kind of fanned out across the cluster and then we can just do some of the aggregation stuff at the last step and that sped things up a bunch mm. so because sometimes you pay you there's there is a cost to splitting up work yes um, but but it's that's outweighed by the benefit of of doing the the computation sort of par yeah, in parallel definitely in our case i mean the jobs are um they're not super lightweight but they're not super heavy either they have to read the file uh, we do a parse of every file so that's kind of like the first step um, and assuming that succeeds and we do a bunch of things with the syntax tree um, i guess this would be a good time to mention we use sidekick for all of our background job processing uh, and that has been very successful for us we've and run what is sidekick time. Sidekick is a, um, it's like an alternative to rescue or delayed job, but it runs in a multi-threaded context instead of multi-process. So one thing you'll find if you use rescue and use it heavily is the overhead of forking a process uh, and running a single job in it, and then rescue basically throws away that process. If you have a lot of fine-grained jobs, that can add up pretty quickly in terms mm -hmm. of latency and CPU time um, and decreased throughput. Sidekick just has a thread pool. You can say, I want you know, 10 threads working, and I, you put 1,000 jobs in the top. It does them 10 at a time until it finishes. So it's very efficient. And last I looked, we've run about 100 million Sidekick jobs uh, since we switched over to Sidekick. Mm. And, and the advantage there is when you fork a process, you're copying all the memory. Right. Uh, whereas with threads, it's sort of a shared memory pool, and so you're not paying as much ram cost yeah threads are just generally much more lightweight than than forks uh, and the memory copying is a big part of that mm -hmm. okay um any growing pains with this growth that you've had recently we have had some um usually that it, in terms of the operations that would manifest itself uh in the form of people's updates being delayed so we run everything through a queue when you hit the website you get the latest information that we have but the big important part is keeping the information up to date right so We've been um, adding additional resources and making optimizations to make sure that we can continually process uh, the jobs fast enough, especially, you know, our peak times are when people are coding. So Monday through Friday, right. around noon to maybe five Eastern time, um, when people on the East Coast and West Coast are writing a bunch of code, that's when the servers are really hot. Um, so we want to make sure that, 
you know, we're staying totally on top of all of the new volume of updates. And the volume of updates has gone up substantially uh, since we last talked. And so we've had to add, you know, add a couple more servers and, and do some optimizations, which have worked out pretty well. But now it's actually running uh, at this point faster than it was uh, when we talked in November. Hmm. And are these jobs running? Are these Ruby? That's parsing the Ruby and everything's and in Ruby. Ruby. Yeah. Okay. Ruby. Yeah, Any thoughts about switching to something like Clojure that is, has maybe a little more support for the concurrency? Well, uh, we haven't really thought too much about that sort of thing. I think that um, JRuby is something we will probably uh, look at in the future, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Rubinius, because a lot of the computations that we do are very CPU intensive, and they generate a lot of um, objects and garbage that needs to be collected. So if you look at the advantages of something like JRuby or Rubinius or similar, you get a generational garbage collector. And you also get a JIT. So those hot code paths where we are you know, running through in tight loops and, and looking at different uh, nodes in the syntax tree, those can get sped up quite a bit um, by mm-hmm. that stuff. I've done some initial testing. It just hasn't been uh, quite hot enough to actually switch over and um, look at, at doing a real production trial. We're sort of you know, like everybody else in, in startup land, we're always balancing between, you know, how much performance um, do we need right now versus like other features that our customers are, are demanding and we're sort of, you know, making changes one way uh, and the other. Sure. So you said one of your, uh, one of your key metrics is um, how long it takes you to build a snapshot or yes. analyze one. Uh, what are your other key metrics? From the like from the operational side, whatever you yeah. Take so that, that that's that's an um, that's an important ops metric. Uh, we use Libratto metrics, which is a SaaS based kind of StatsD style tool um, to generate a bunch of graphs. Uh, and so, you know, on my laptop, I can pull up twelve graphs that sort of will tell me things like um, what's the uh, success rate of fetching new code, usually from GitHub, right? Are those Git fetches succeeding or failing? Um, are parsers you know, is the parser timing out or is it, um, you know, running successfully? And if it's failing, why is it failing? So there's a whole smattering of stuff. Snap, snapshot processing time is probably our biggest health metric in terms of, like, is the system working uh, working properly? Uh, if that's happy, then most likely everything else is happy. Mm. What are your key metrics on the sort of business side? Uh, revenue. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> that's monthly recurring revenue. Yeah. So on the last podcast, you said that uh, your focus was mostly like conversion rate from trial to paid. Is that kind of yeah. where you focus your efforts today? Still, um, we're doing pretty well with with that metric in particular. So it's not something actually at this point that we're spending a lot of time focusing on because um, the rate is is really good. Uh, so we look at it and we say, you know what? I think there are probably other areas of the pipeline that we. Um, that we can optimize right now. Can you tell us what it is? Uh, the conversion rate from trial to paid. Yeah. Uh, it fluctuates a little week to week, but we're above 30% at this point. Wow. Sounds really high. Yeah, we hope so. Yeah. <laughs> are, so, and so are most of those people that start off, I mean, have you verified that open source is a good like feeder of your paid plans? Like do people start an account and then add an open source project and then add paid yeah, stuff. well, you don't actually have to create an account to add an open source project. It's t- a total free-for-all. So anybody can add any open source project. It oh. doesn't have to be the project maintainer that adds it. And very often what we see is somebody might go to the website and add open source projects that even they're not maintainers of. They're just interested um, in you know looking at the metrics or maybe they're thinking about making a contribution and they want some extra information before they start on that. So that happens a lot. Um, and as a result, we end up with you know, like we said, thousands of open source projects that are there in public. 
Um, that works out well because uh, we get a lot of you know good traffic from GitHub when people want to jump from looking at the code to looking at the quality. Uh, also, Google uh, is nice to us in that regard as well. Do you have duplicates in there? Uh, well, we have forks. So yeah, yeah of those um, you know, 6,000 or whatever, I don't know how many of them are forks, but anybody can add their own fork. So if you're looking at making a change to a project, very often people will fork it, add their fork to code climate, and then kind of compare the two. Hmm. Interesting. Have you thought about a uh, something like a Travis CI bot kind of thing, which is like Travis, like Cloud Climate shows up at the poll and is like, "Hey, your code sucks." Yes, perhaps. Okay, <laughs> All right. I cannot say more about this. Gotcha. Um, I'm going to take out a patent on that idea real quick before. I... <laughs> uh, so last time I talked to you, you said you don't consider Code Climate a startup. Yeah, in, in the sense that you know the goal is not to make this a billion dollar business. Uh, do you still not want a billion dollars? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a business, right? So the goal is to provide a service that's valuable to customers and make money at the same time. Um, that's you know still where I see it. Um, we're always evaluating you know, what are the opportunities for, for growing the business and making more customers happy uh, or making our current customers happier by adding new stuff. Um, and those are kind of the two general directions that we're looking at when we say okay what are we going to work on tomorrow right um generally the the rule of thumb has been uh, make everything really awesome for people who are doing ruby development and then look at ways that we you know might uh provide value for people who aren't doing ruby development or who are doing ruby development and also let's say javascript or coffee script development and that's kind of how we've sort of thought about the roadmap hmm you, you keep saying we. Are you are you a we for real? I think before it was just to you mostly, right? With like a little yeah. Last design time consulting. it was more uh, royal. Uh, I um, <laughs> we uh, still uh, have a designer who helps us out with a lot of stuff, which makes the site clear and uh, look great. Uh, and also, we we may be bringing in uh, somebody else. I can't really talk about that quite yet. But <laughs> I keep touching uh, on all these things that yeah. you have, aren't willing to talk about yet. Uh, but there might be further developments along that. Okay. Line. Interesting. We didn't powwow before this podcast and like get all the secret info. No, this, I, I didn't get a just chance dumb to, uh, to redline your question list beforehand. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> exactly. That's true. People always want the question list before the podcast, by the way. Like yeah. People, and, and we always say no. I, I was told that on the third podcast interview, you get the question list. <laughs> That's right. You sound really smart and prepared as on the third podcast. So the first two, you have to sort of shoot from the hip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you launched uh, something called Security Monitor. That's right. Um, in the wake of the Rails security issues. Yes. How is that working out? Yeah. So this actually, um, the timing of this was very coincidental. We, we've been working on the security monitor feature since, um, I think we were working on it at the time in, in November when we talked, but we weren't talking about it publicly. Uh, and then, as everybody kind of knows, starting basically at the beginning of the year, Rails has had a number of not necessarily new issues, but disclosures of issues, some serious, some not as serious, uh, related to security of apps that are running on Rails. And that's generated a lot of interest and buzz around the community around like, what can we be doing more to help make sure our apps are safe? So Security Monitor uh, basically is taking the code climate model of an automated code review and expanding it from quality review to also reviewing for risky code potential security defects. That might be uh, a gem that you're depending on that was previously thought to be safe and is now known to be risky. Uh, or sort of more interestingly, it might be a case where you're doing something like 
um, taking params and setting them into the attributes of a model without using any protection like adder accessible, adder protected, and that sort of thing. Um, so this is not totally launched yet, but we're getting very close. Um, the uh, We have some current customers who are already using it and finding it pretty valuable. Um, and we're going to be rolling it out to everybody within the next few weeks. Hmm. Nice. Uh, so you're in town for Boston RB? Yes. You're giving a talk tonight? Yes. Uh, on Rails app security in practice? That's or did you change the title? Uh, I saw you debating this on Twitter. Yeah, uh, that is the current title, but there might be some surprises for people who make it out to uh, the meetup tonight. Oh, interesting. Okay. And this video, actually, Boston RB is great about posting the videos. So by the time you hear this podcast, you can go watch the talk on the Boston RB website, which is bostonrb.org. Um, but can you sort of summarize what you're going to be laying on us without the secret surprises? Um, so I have taken the talk in a... Uh, so this, this will be published afterwards. But what you will find uh, when you watch the video is I've decided to take the talk in a di- bit of a different direction than uh-huh. what it was when I... Uh, first proposed it what i proposed was rails application security in practice and giving people a foundation for how to think about securing their rails applications what they need to look out for um, what are the key things to uh to do from a processes and tools perspective and we're not going to really talk about that (laughs) (laughs) so what we will talk about is some stuff that I, i hope people find pretty interesting uh the uh retitled talk is rails insecure defaults hmm Rails is Rails is, is Rails apostrophe insecure uh, defaults insecure defaults. That's yes. some good trolling right there. That's like flame bait title. Yeah, you know, you put a title in your talk like that, and you're like, "How trolly should I make this?" Yeah, um, it's not going to be very trolly though. Uh, I hope that is still true when mm. people are listening to this and are able to pull up the video. Yeah, so so I think this is one of the the dirty little secrets of of speaking at things, which is you don't actually have to present what you say you're going to present. Yeah, once they give you the microphone, yeah. they kind of just have to trust you. Yeah. Um, so I've changed top talk talk topics a bunch of times, actually. Like it gets to be like two weeks out, and I'm like, that actually this is just not working, and I'll email the people and be like, I want to do something else, and I they always say yes. Yeah, uh, that's especially a useful trick if you're doing um, conference driven development or CDD, where you submit a proposal about something that you intend to have built by the time the conference rolls around yes. and it doesn't exist two uh-huh. weeks beforehand, then you just, you got to change it up. Yep. I, I do conference driven learning and sometimes it, it's too aggressive. It's like, actually I can't learn Haskell in the next two weeks. So <laughs> I'm hosed and here's a new talk. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Let me do it. And they're like, oh, okay, but that's, that's, I've been railing lately about the sort of CFP process that most uh, conferences use yes and so it seems to be a common trend these days of first doing a blind selection they say yeah we don't want to inc- include any biases so we're going to just look at your proposals right as the first round and, I, and in my opinion that is the least that's the worst information like my my proposal proposals are often not what people end up talking about and like they're typically written you know months in advance of actually writing the talk and when you get to actually write the talk you're like oh actually this doesn't work and i need to change it or i need to change my topic entirely yeah and since they never complain about that it's like why are this actually doesn't matter everyone's pretending that the proposal is what the talk will be but it's not yeah i mean and, and the talk the the conference proposals themselves often are very high level like speaking right. from you know the standpoint of reviewing goruko proposals there's a lot of times where we see a proposal and we're like okay, this looks interesting, but is this like the talk about Rack and HTTP that I you know, really want to hear that goes into all these details? Or is it 
going to like go in a different direction and you don't really know. So you're kind of, you know, at the end of the day, when you make those final selections, um, a lot of it is, is banking on a speaker, right? It's like, exactly. is this somebody who we think is going to take any topic, uh, and make it really engaging? Right. Um, are they going to, you know, uh, present it in a way that maybe it hasn't been presented before and give us new information and, it's yeah. You know, I don't envy uh, other people who have to do conference proposal selection as well because it's right. really hard. Agreed. But I, yeah, I'm not sure about the the, the trend to do um, to do rounds that are that are blind. I understand the the you know good intentions behind that in terms right. of trying to remove biases from the process. But uh, I, I guess I'd love to see data. Uh, you know, and it's just like anything else, right? I don't know. I don't know if. Um, to what extent it's been successful in, in achieving the goals that it was intended for. So you want to see conference climate and conference climate. Yeah. That's, that's your conference gets a B in not my next selection, not my next startup. He's, he's winking at me. I think he, it actually is. Um, yeah. So the thing is, if you flip this on your head right. on its flip it on its head and say, let's just choose by people instead, this yeah. happens already. Like conferences invite people and also especially keynotes right it's like right. we want you to come give a keynote and then they never make you say what they, they don't make these people say what's going to be until yeah. you know the very end so like this model actually does work in the other direction yeah i mean and, and one thing that you'll see is if you look at the conference some of the conferences who are going out there and saying very publicly like we're doing a blind selection process they are doing a blind selection process for the slots that they've chosen not to handpick mm. so yeah. it's a hybrid model usually sure. um and that you know that's the the current most common system some you know sometimes it works well sometimes it doesn't work well uh, but i don't i don't have the solutions on this one <laughs> fair enough uh so you guys added uh two factor off recently we did and you used a service called Authy. yes and you're ha- happy with how this turned out yes uh we it hasn't seen a tremendous amount of uptick i haven't looked at it recently um but i was expecting that more people would flip it on uh than did after the initial announcement Mm. Um, we might work on more ways to to promote that sort of thing in the application but it's just one of you know many things that we're doing um to to sort of continually push the the edge with um with security so had, had people been asking for this have they been clamoring for it uh no this was something that i wanted um uh you know code climate's really important to me i like to make sure that whatever important applications i'm using are behind two-factor auth um github actually doesn't support two-factor auth as of time of recording which is sort of astounding to me um considering uh the applications that do right your gmail supports it dns simple which we're a big fan of and we use supports it github seems to be kind of like the the big one that's hanging out there that that yeah, hopefully they have enough developers to be able to implement that by now. Sure, nice GitHub trolling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what have you been doing for uh, marketing efforts these days? Are, are your focus is your focus on that? Or are you more on the app itself? Well, I'm here talking to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> good, well put. Good point. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're always blending things together. Um, I'm speaking at more conferences this year. Uh, so, you know, we, we like to do um, organic inbound marketing, things like developing content that's useful to our users uh, and or prospective customers. Mm. So the blog is, is big for us. Um, yeah. We have a site that we will be launching um, that I can talk about, which is railssecurity.com. Uh, that's going to be kind of a free online book. That's an authoritative resource sort of trying to be comprehensive and detailed covering all the different threats 
that you have to look out for if you're building a, an application with Ruby and Rails, mm -hmm. a web app, mm -hmm. and what are the different countermeasures that you can use to, to sort of mitigate those threats, either Rails features or otherwise, right? So we want to be the, like the one-stop shop for getting an understanding of what you need to worry about and, and how you can actually deal with it, which I kind of found, you know, as I've gotten more and more into the security stuff, felt like it was really lacking. Like the Rails guide is very good, and that's kind of the first thing that people will, will point you to, but... The scope is really things that, you know, it doesn't cover Ruby issues. Uh, it's sort of focused on what are the known issues with Rails and what can it help you with and what can't it help you with. But it doesn't have a uh, as much detail on many of these areas as, as I was hoping for. Mm. Will this guide casually mention that Code Climate just so happens to automatically check all these things for you? Perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it should. It should. Yeah. Content marketing. Content marketing. It's not slimy if you're giving away stuff. I mean, I'm really, I'm, I'm actually being serious. Yes. If, if you're giving away useful information, I think this is actually a great model. And I think, I think especially this works really well for developer type people who tend to be probably pretty advertising averse. I mean, who isn't, I guess, but right. I, get a, I have this feeling that as a whole, software developers are more so. But so if you can kind of say, here's useful information, period, it's useful. By the way, here's my little plug at the end. It's like, okay, well, you're not a jerk. You, you gave me some, something useful already. Yeah, and we do the same sort of thing with the blog. Right. Um, I was definitely been happy with um, the reaction to a lot of the content that we put out, which is, you know, there's really no strings attached. We publish free stuff on the blog. We try to write really good articles uh, when I can sort of fit it into my schedule. I can get like an awesome guest author to post and then we put them out there and, and see what happens. But, you know, and at the bottom of all of them, we, um, we have a mailing list that we get people to uh, try to get people to subscribe to. We have a Twitter account. Uh, we also have a link to the Code Climate product. And, you know, people, um, I think, are very understanding uh, of the need to, um, you know, to have something sponsoring the, the development of the content. Because if we didn't have jobs like you do and like I do, where we get to do things like podcasts, you know, in the middle of the day on a Tuesday where basically somebody's money is effectively paying for that. Mm -hmm. um, there wouldn't be as much content that's out there. Uh, yep. So it's been really nice. Yeah. And to be fair, we do this too. We do this exact same model. We have a blog as well, but our blog links to the other things that we have written that are paid content. So I'm not, uh, I'm not being entirely hypocritical here. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm, 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 I'm guilty as well, I guess I should say. Um, what goes to your mailing list when you, when you get people signed up on there? Yeah, uh, so the mailing list will get uh, a couple things. They get um, new uh, blog posts that we put out, like basically about one a month, as mm -hmm. well as um, we'll put together kind of links to other things that we found particularly interesting, sort of curated list of, of resources that are in there as well. Hmm. So what's next? What's next for what? You left that deliberately <laughs> open-ended, didn't you? I do that sometimes. Yeah, I, I've caught on. Yeah. What's next? I know what's next for today. Today is the talk. Today is Boston RB. We've yeah. touched on some things that may or may not exist for Code Climate. Yeah. Any, any longer term plans or visions or yeah. hallucinations? Um, okay. We'll go back to uh, the one that you started sniffing around uh, by uh, a little bit earlier. Um, mm. We are, uh, our next big feature after we get done with this security monitor stuff is going to be pull request testing, uh, which we haven't talked about anywhere. So, this is, uh, I guess you get this as a little exclusive on the, uh, yeah. the ThoughtBot Got podcast. the scoop. Um, but yeah, uh, it makes perfect sense, right? You make a change. You want to know how it affects your code base before it goes into master. Lots of people are using the GitHub pull request sort of model and the GitHub pull request feature specifically. Uh, so we think it's a, a perfect fit to annotate your pull request with information about how it changes the quality and security of your code base, just like Travis will annotate it and tell, it, uh, tell you about how it affects your build. Cool. That's exciting. Um, 
What's holding you up from launching it? The uh, Boston RB tonight. Okay. And launching, uh, finishing launching the security feature and then, uh, then everything else. It's next on the, the docket? It's the next big one. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll launch a lot of little stuff before then. Do you have any, will you have any tests in place to somehow like verify that, hey, this is a useful thing and we, we should have done it and it, it worked well? Well, uh, you're talking about just like in terms of figuring out where to go with the product. Is this the right, you know, is this feature valuable to our users? I guess so. Or, or more like, I guess, uptake. Yeah. Or like, uh, so like say for, take a group of trial users and right. divide them in half and tell half of them about this thing and don't tell the other half and like d- do more people convert when they know yeah. this exists. Yeah, we haven't done a ton of that uh, sort of thing. But, you know, for any big feature we're launching like this, we'll look at, um, you know, how many people are using it out of our user base. Like given new users who are coming in, the features available to them for day one, are people setting it up? Are they using it? We do the same sort of thing with, you know, some of the integrations that we set up. We can see how many people are using campfire notifications or hip mm-hmm. chat notifications and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the biggest metric I think for the pull request testing will be, um, people, uh, no longer emailing me and asking me when we're going to launch pull request. <laughs> so that will go from a very non-zero uh, number to zero, hopefully. And then that will uh, hopefully prove that it, it's valuable. Uh, interesting. But so, uh, yeah, I guess my, my, the motivation behind my question yeah. of the AB testing is you say your key metric is revenue. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the metric of uptake, that doesn't answer the revenue question. It doesn't say when we built this thing and it took five weeks, did it in fact increase revenue? Yeah. Um, so, you know, People building companies do all sorts of crazy stuff to try to get quantitative information to prove that different decisions are right. And that that can be very valuable in many cases. Um, I think where we're at right now uh, and the, the approach that I like to take is focusing on qualitative feedback first and then quantitative maybe. Uh, and then but and if if yes, then second after the qualitative. So. Hmm. We like to add stuff uh, when we're at, looking at adding things. We try to talk to people before, during, and after we're building it, um, and just you know have those conversations. Here's what we're we're thinking about. Does that you know make sense for you? Like, what would you like to see? Um, and just kind of get ourselves as much as possible in our customer's shoes, uh, just by having conversations. And uh, that can go, I think, a lot farther than many people. Um, expect right i think a lot of times developers especially have this tendency to drop want to jump straight to metrics and stats and a b tests uh and we'll try to kind of squeeze blood from a stone where you've got um you know six variants in an a b test and you've got 200 people a week going to the website and you're like it's not producing any data it's like well i think you need to try a different approach so we we really try to do the qualitative stuff as well Mm. feeling driven development feeling driven development sure got it uh, yeah, and it's we've run into that exact problem that you talk about with the A/B testing, for example. It's like yeah, you get eight people through the funnel in a couple of weeks. It's like, well, there's no, we're never going to get data from this. Yeah, you have to try, especially when your uh, samples sizes are pretty low early on. You have to try incredibly large variants. Like you're not gonna, you're not Google. You can't optimize, you know, seven shades of blue on this button. You have to try, you know completely different things right. that are saying basically completely different a button things. that punches you in the face versus or, or a like button. Uh, if you're doing a home page like one variant that's a video and nothing else and then the other thing that's your web page not like just different headlines on right your web right page. right and then maybe maybe you'll get some useful data um but you've also got a t- like you can wait forever for the samples to accumulate but if you can't get useful results in you know i, I usually try to set the threshold at about two weeks uh, then I, you know, I'm distracted and onto something else by that point. So if it doesn't, if I can't produce a result in two weeks, call it a, you know, a, a null, null result and move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. So if people want to give Code Climate a try, where would they find it? It's CodeClimate.com. 
Okay. And if they wanted to reach out to you and get in touch? That's Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at CodeClimate.com. Cool. Um, thanks for coming by and uh, chatting and working in our office for the day. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, giving me an office to work in for the day. Yeah, it's and, nice to have uh, fresh, interesting, smart people around, as yeah. opposed to our stale, interesting people. <laughs> We're tired of them. I, I don't think you got too much of a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcasts slash 40. Uh, today's podcast was recorded by Anna Mariola, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.